Can a cable TV entrepreneur make it on the internet? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today my guest is Fred Seiberg. Fred's been launching new ventures for decades. He made a name for himself when he developed the brands for MTV and Nickelodeon. Fred's known in the industry for pioneering the idea of branding cable networks. The ironic thing is, now that distribution is changing, one of the cable network's most valuable assets is their brands. After Fred's success in branding, he was hired by Ted Turner to take over the Hanna-Barbera cartoon studio, which was struggling at the time. Fred engineered a very high-profile turnaround for the famous cartoon studio. Now, cable television was something that I grew up with, not an industry I got to watch develop. But now we have a chance to hear what it was like to be at the leading edge of the cable business and start to apply those lessons to the internet business. This is not to say that Fred hasn't had his internet successes too. He runs the most popular blog for cartoonists and started several extremely popular internet video shows, including Channel Frederator, which has a mix of cartoons. Now Fred's upping the ante with the launch of a new company called Next New Networks. Get ready to hear how Fred plans on making a big mark on internet video. Well, Fred, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you for having me. I always wonder, you know, how do people get into like the cartoon business as a living? But uh, before I get into that, can you just tell me about how you got started originally as an entrepreneur? Sure. I started out really as the son of mom and pop business people. My parents were pharmacists and own a pharmacy out on Long Island. My mom's father was a pharmacist who owned a little business in Bulgaria. And my dad's father owned a little ice cream store in upstate New York. So I come from a really long line of self-employed people. And when I was 19, I started a record company with one of my best friends out on Long Island to record what we thought were underserved artists in blues and jazz. Uh, I went on from there to do, you know, a number of ventures. I was an independent record producer. I was employed by media corporations for three or four years. And then I started consulting and production company in television, uh, specializing in cable television, in 1983. Did that for 10 years. Went back onto the corporate dole for about five years working for Ted Turner at Turner Broadcasting. And then became an independent producer starting Frederator in 1998. That's a lot of different ventures to start. A lot of people might just take it easy, especially if their parents started their own business. A lot of children of entrepreneurs want to go off and become doctors. What drove you to do this? Well, you know, I always love doing everything that I do, and I was raised by people who actually really love their work. Now, it happened that we were in retail, so they had to work seven days a week, but other than, you know, the normal things of being too tired to get up one morning and, you know, like being sick of working or whatever it is, my parents really loved their work. And they raised kids who thought that work was not a chore, but an obligation and a joy. And I really absorbed that from when the time I was a little kid. I literally felt like I went to work for my parents in their store when I was four. Because when I walked in, they would give me a chore to do. And I was really thrilled to be around my parents and helping them out in their work. 
when I got to be 19 and I came up with this scheme to start a record company with my friend, I fell into it the way that most people fall into going to class or looking for a job because the fact of the matter is I'd never looked for a job. Anytime I needed like a little spending money, my parents gave me a few extra hours at the store and I could work. And it kind of continued like that all my life. My first notion was, what's a great idea? And my next notion was, how do I turn it into a business? Interestingly, another way that they raised me is they didn't particularly raise me to earn lots and lots of money out of it. Their first mission was never making the money. It was making enough money to continue doing what they did. And that's really been my mission too. Many times to a fault and many times to failure or many times to really not making the amount of money I could have out of a venture, but really going after it for the joy and for the fun of work. So when you have your criteria for what kind of business to go after, it's not necessarily, if let's say you have five ideas on the table, you're not saying, hey, which one can make the most money can be the biggest business? you have other criteria? I don't have any criteria. <laughs> I have criteria afterwards, but I never start with the notion of, oh, I need to start a business. <laughs> uh, I start from a notion usually of what do I like doing? What am I interested in? And I usually chase those interests for a period of time before it dawns on me in an effective way, in a real way, that there is a business there. Uh, we'll get to it in a little while, I'm sure. But my latest venture was I started it for purely educational reasons. A partner of mine said, if you do this, you'll learn something. And I started doing that. And over the course of a year or two or three, it led me to a business venture. And that's kind of how I do it. Once I have a business, my criteria pretty simply are, can I have fun? Can I make money? And can I stand the people that I'm working with? <laughs> I figure if I can get two of three at any given time, I'm doing really well. <laughs> that's great. So I'm sure we could spend all day talking about your past ventures, but... What really interests me is how did you get into the cartoon business? Oh, that's um, one of those have fun, make money, and stand the <laughs> people you work with things. Uh, I, by almost by accident, became one of the earliest cable television executives in 1980, May 5th, 1980, actually, when cable television was the new media. I was hired as Bob Pittman's first employee at a company called Warner MX Satellite Entertainment Company, a startup within two very, very large corporations, Warner Communications and American Express. And for the next 10 or 12 years, I was some version of either a cable television executive or an outside consultant that effectively worked as a cable television executive. And in that process, I, along with my partner, Alan Goodman, figured out that media could be branded the way the consumer products were. In fact, we were really the first guys and the first company that looked at media as a branding exercise. Before then, it was just a collection of products, you know, on one channel or one radio station or in one magazine group or something. 
And we uh, did it first with MTV, then with Nickelodeon, Nick at Night, and a whole bunch of others. And in that process, I did a lot with animation. First, because at MTV, when we were trying to solve the creative problems for it, Alan and I realized that we thought that rock and roll and cartoons existed in the same psychic space for different age kids. You know, for kids, for cartoons were really for kids, you know, up to 12 years old. And from 12 years old on, rock and roll occupied that same psychic space. So I started paying a lot of attention to animation. And then with the MTV logo, we started executing it with animation. I started working with animators all around the world. And over the course of the next 10 or 12 years, I'm, a, I'm less an, execu an executor than I am an analyst of things. I have a very intellectual approach. I might as well be an academic in certain ways to any work that I do. And any part of my work that I like a lot, I become a student of. So the part of animation that I really liked, I just started learning more and more, anything I could read, anyone I could talk to, whatever it was that I did. And I became this sort of amateur student of the business. Uh, in the early 90s, my company had morphed itself into an advertising agency. And we were making money hand over fist, and I really was not having a good time. I didn't really like being in the service business. I had taken a business where I had been an employee and the original guy who did all that branding for all those networks. And all of a sudden, the work had been handed over to my successors and now they were my clients. And I would walk in every morning and they would tell me what to do. And I really don't like being told what to do. And I started thinking about closing the company and starting a new venture. And in fact, that was a place where I was searching for a business. At the time, I thought that what I'd do is start my own cable network. It happened that it was the worst business environment to start a cable network <laughs> any time from 1979, probably to the early 2000s. It just was horrible. But in the process, I literally talked to hundreds of people. And one of those people I talked to was a great friend of mine who ran Ted Turner's entertainment division. And I was asking him for help, both uh, personally and professionally. Would Turner be interested in investing in this new venture I had? Boom, 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 boom. And in the process, he calls me up one day and he goes, you know, uh, Turner just bought the famous Hanna-Barbera cartoon studio. And I said, yes, I know you. And I talked about it over the last you know, period of time. He goes, you know, I just had this thought, why don't you come out and run it? <laughs> and I looked at my watch, and on my watch was literally at 12 o'clock was Fred Flintstone's head. <laughs> and at uh, 3 o'clock was Yogi Bear's head. At 6 o'clock was Scooby-Doo's head. And at 9 o'clock was Huckleberry Hound's head. It was 10.35 in the morning. And I said, well, you know, I do have my own company, but I am closing it. I'll be there in three months. And you know, it was like one of those types of uh, deals. And it was really an accident that was waiting to happen on both our parts. From Scott Sass's point of view, he was the guy who hired me. I was a real dark horse candidate. My background in public was I was a marketing guy. And I knew nothing about what really what cartoon characters were. Taking an MTV logo and wiggling it in front of a camera 
and animating it is not the same as creating a character and a story and all. I had no background really in storytelling, in script writing, in drawing and animation. And from my standpoint, I had really built an amazingly great reputation as the first guy to really point the way to the future of how media was communicating about itself to the greater public in the world, not just in the United States. And so, but you know, I wasn't having any fun anymore and it seemed like fun. So literally 90 days after Scott called, I was bringing my suitcases to a hotel in Los Angeles and poof, I was president of one of the most famous cartoon studios <laughs> in history. Wow. It was amazing. So did you ask them what the hell they were thinking? Uh, no, I knew better than that because if <laughs> I asked them, they would tell me and then I'd get really scared. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good policy. So, you know, first of all, between being at you know, MTV and all these kind of creative outlets and now getting into another one, how do you view yourself in, in the sense that when you look at a media company today, you generally think, hey, they're the creative types you know, sitting around in t-shirts, coming up with great ideas, and they're the business types, wearing suits, ties, counting, you know, looking at spreadsheets. How do you view yourself? Well, you know, one thing to note is that Bob Pittman, who really was the cultural founder of MTV Networks, he wasn't the founder, but he was the guy, he set up a, a perspective that was unique to him that ended up being the culture of the company which is he came out of radio programming and ended up being the boss. And in the radio business, it was anathema that a programmer would ever be the boss. In 99% of the cases of radio stations, the boss, the general manager, comes out of ad sales. And it was a very traditional path. And programmers were always programmers. Ad sales guys had a chance to be the boss. At MTV Networks, Tom Freston came out of marketing and programming. Judy McGrath, I hired as a promo copywriter in 1981. She's now the CEO of the company. <laughs> uh, Herb Scannell, who rose to be CEO of Nickelodeon and vice chairman of MTV Networks, I brought into radio when he was a college student and <laughs> then brought him into MTV Networks as a promotional assistant at the movie channel. And he rose. So I come from a culture where it's okay that not the normal path is followed. And the creative people can not only run a company, but can run it successfully into a multi-billion dollar company. So in and of itself, that is not daunting to me. But what I've become fond of saying, and I think it's really, really true, is when I'm in a room with animators and artists and musicians and all they think I'm the suit and when I'm in the room with the suits they think I'm a wacky creative guy and the truth is I don't know that I'm kind of either uh, what I am is I am a creative guy who has an essential understanding of what the business role is in the mix and as a business guy I understand how the creative process and the product that comes from creative people is the fuel for the business fire in the media business. So I walk down both sides of the street. 
Let's see. So you were at Hanna-Barbera, and when you took the reins there, I mean, I guess, first of all, it sounds like you'd been jumping between running your own business and running existing businesses. But what's it like to, you know, walk into this? What I imagine, I mean, I don't know, I imagine it's kind of a cult, you know, in that you have these cartoonists, they're really set in their ways. They must have been very skeptical. They're, you know, they're bringing in some guy from NTV. What does he know about our business? You must have been in the room. (laughs) It was brutal. I was scared to death. So first of all, I'm leaving the city that I've lived in since I'm 17, and I'm leaving the coast that I lived in since I was born. So I'm not only going into a new company, I'm going into a new country, because I don't know if you know anybody who lives on the West Coast. It's a different country. We have the same president. We have the same money. Other than that, we're like, it's a really different place. Secondly, I'm going into a factory town where the factory is show business. And, you know, the truth of the matter is the people in the factory town and show business are skeptical of the East Coasters who always represent the suits. And the people on the East Coast side who represent the marketing, media, and advertising think that the only good that show business people do is give them a place to put their ads and make some money. So it's a very tense situation. On top of that, Hanna-Barbera had not had a hit since 1983 in the Smurfs. (laughs) Wow. And they were fading fast, but never noticed. You know, really, truly, no one in the building ever noticed that they weren't successful anymore. They were still living off the fat from the Flintstones and the Jetsons and Huckleberry Hound from the 50s and early 60s. On top of that, the founders, Joe Barbera and Bill Hanna, had sold the company in 1966, but continued running it until just a few years before I got there. And in fact, we're still very active in the company. I took over Bill Hanna's office, and Joe Barbera was like right next to me. I was so scared (laughs) that the office was huge. It was twice as big as this room. And it was like an old-fashioned Hollywood mogul office. The desk was so big you could um, sleep a family of four on the desk. I just sat in one corner of the couch shaking for two years. I didn't get off the couch. It was like people would come in and like go to sit at my desk. And I would, no, no, come over here. They didn't believe I had literally never gotten up from the couch for two years. And the truth of the matter was that the staff... Uh, was skeptical, and more than skeptical, some of them were downright hostile. I was not only new to the animation business, new to show business, and new to Hollywood. But from their perspective, I was young. Remember that this company was founded by two gentlemen who were 48 years old when they started the company. They had been contract employees at MGM Cartoons making Tom and Jerry for 20 years. (laughs) So they start the company at 48 when the whole industry is collapsing. And the world-class people who had built the business, Chuck Jones, a guy named Michael Maltese, Tex Avery, who you've heard, they were all out of work. All of them. So Bill and Joe built this great company by hiring them all. The result was 40 years later, 
anyone who was under 40 was considered a young whippersnapper. <laughs> there was nobody in management under 60, well, under 50. So I not only come in with all these strikes against me, but I'm young. How old were you? I was 41. And then on top of it, it was two years after a series of big events in the animation business had roiled the business. The Simpsons, Beavis and Butthead, Ren and Stimpy, and Rugrats. Those things which in the animation business were truly the revolution has come, so confused them all that they thought that because I had worked at MTV and Nickelodeon, I wanted them to put farts in every cartoon. <laughs> and it was just a really, really long slog of a series of missed communications between them and me until we like found a common vocabulary. And they realized that I was there not only to fix the company, fix the business, but to be their biggest fan. It took two whole years. It was brutal. They, you've heard the analogy of turning the bathtub around, the uh, battleship around in the bathtub. Oh man, it was like that, but worse. So as they call like the Turner's people, they you know call you up after three months and they say, "How are things going?" You ha you have to say to them, "Look, I'm not jiving yet. I hope I do." Like, well, the Turner people were both great and horrible at the same time. They were almost entirely great. I uh, met with Ted Turner for 15 minutes before I took the job. <laughs> and Scott Sasso, who was the guy I reported to, I would say that we, you know, collectively spoke for two hours before I like showed up at the door in Los Angeles. And I walked into the guy who was running the studio at the time and we, I sit down and he goes, what does Ted Turner want from us? I went, well, how do I know? I talked with the guy for 15 minutes. In 10 minutes, he was complimenting my belt. <laughs> and he said, well, what do we do? I said, look, I got to tell you, I have no idea what he wants. I do know that I actually read a book on the history of CNN, and it gave me a sense of who the man is. And here's my sense of who the man is, which is he expects me to run the business. And one day, he'll tell me whether I'm running it the way he wants it or not. If it's not, he'll fire me. And if it is, he'll promote me. And I'm going to run this place like I own it. And that'll either work for you and will work for them or it won't work for either of you and I'll be gone. And that's how it is. And that's kind of what I went and did. I, I walked in and really imagined, partly I guess because of the way I was raised, that it was mine. And when my boss would tell me the strategy he wanted me to follow, which he did you know, fairly often, I would agree, and then I would call him back at some point or another and go, you know, I don't think that's the right idea. <laughs> and I would tell him what I thought my right idea was, and he goes, well, as long as you hit budget. And for two years, we kind of operated that way, and then my partner and I, a guy named Jed Simmons, who is now one of my partners in my new venture, he was the COO of the company. He was one of Scott's Turner business development people. He was really Scott's guy, not my guy. We walked in and we said, okay, well, we're throwing the budget out. We're starting over again. We're going to lose this many tens of millions of dollars more before we turn around. And I thought, you know, Scott was going to lose it, you know, like right there. And he took a deep breath and went, okay, why? And we explained the whole thing out and we gave him our pitch for strategy, success, failure, the whole works. 
and he said, sounds good to me. Let's go. Let's go see Ted. And we told him what was going on. Ted said, sounds like a great idea. You know, get going. And that was that. So really what happened with Turner is that they essentially ran the company, our part of the company, in an entrepreneurial way, which was we set a budget, and once a month we checked in and told them we were on or off budget. And other than that, in between, they really let me run the company the way they want. Where they were a pain in the neck was sort of the simple things. Turner had never made a major acquisition, and we were the first Hollywood acquisition. And you know, Turner had operated, as you know, out of Atlanta, in a little bubble where they had created a situation where they didn't pay attention to the unions that had run their traditional businesses. They didn't pay attention to the copyright owners in the same way that most people did. They had sort of thrown the hierarchy on, on its head as to what was important and what wasn't important. And they thought, like all young businesses do, that they had the magic formula and the secret sauce. And they came in and started running Hanna-Barbera that way, and trying to anyway. So like one of the first things they tried to do is get rid of the union. Well, getting rid of a union in a union town, in a company that's been a union company for 40 years, that was tough. And it didn't go well for Turner. And it left a lot of bad feelings with employees. Because it, it took Turner almost a year to realize that the animation union really was not a very difficult union to deal with after all. And it didn't really stop us from operating our business and it didn't cost us any more money to operate that way. So, you know, they made a series of missteps as uh, an acquirer would do. But after about a year, we got rid of those missteps and they kind of learned to leave us alone and operate the way we operated. Uh, they realized that Scott and Ted trusted us to do our business. And, you know, after 10 or 12 hitless years, we showed up with seven hits. They were like, hallelujah, beat the band, you know, let's promote you, and which they did, and it was fantastic. So how do you make those hits come about? Mm. You know, the truth is, as I said, I'm less an executor than I'm an analyst. Hollywood is pretty much run by executors. If you go in to make a movie at Warner Brothers, you're making a movie pretty much the way they did in 1928 with some technological advances and with a different view of the business model because of you know, the importance of um, movie distribution versus TV distribution, et cetera, et cetera. But it's pretty much the same way. And you end up being a cog in a wheel. And if you're not a cog in a wheel, you don't do well. There was a few years where David Geffen had sold his company to Warners and decided he wanted to be a movie executive on the lot. And he moved in and with two years had moved out because David Geffen isn't any cog in any wheel. So my difficulty was that there was a system that had been set up not only to produce and create within the studio, but to sell, distribute, and disseminate outside the studio. And from my perspective, that system was hopelessly atrophied and no longer productive or useful, neither of those systems. But what did I know? You know, I was a marketing guy from the <laughs> East Coast. And so for the two years I spent on the couch, what I did is I analyzed. 
I tried to do as little as possible. Jed was in fixing the business issues. There were 40 years worth of business problems, contracts that had been cut incorrectly, royalty agreements that made no sense. It was, that part was just, a, it was holy hell. I tried to figure out what the essences of the business were and why we weren't hitting those marks. And the you know, quick version of the story is I realized that a creative business like Hanna-Barbera depended on talent. And the only view that talent had of Hanna-Barbera was it was a place to start your career or a place to end your career. But when you were at the peak of your career, you didn't want to go in that building. And I went to my boss and I said, we need to turn around the perception that Hanna-Barbera is a place for uncreative hacks. And he said, do you think that's possible? I said, I don't know. It's been a place for creative hacks for like a really long time. We'll have to really, we'll have to work really hard to change that. And I did a lot of research and interviews and two of the biggest people I interviewed were Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera who not only had founded, run, and created the Hanna-Barbera that was I was complaining about, but they had been employees themselves at MGM, like I said, making Tom and Jerry cartoons, and really were part of inventing the industry, both from a business standpoint and creative, back in the days of the 40s when theatrical cartoons reeled the day. So one day I asked Joe Barbera, what makes a great producer? He said, well, you know, Fred Quimby at at uh, MGM, he was a great producer. He would come in in the morning, make some phone calls. At 11 o'clock, uh, go to his barber and get a shave. At noon, he'd go to lunch. He'd come back from lunch, make a couple of co uh, calls to East Coast distributors, and then go home. He was a fabulous producer. And I said, what were you doing Like while he was doing that? He said, we were off in the corner making the cartoons we felt like making. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I could do that. <laughs> I could do that Fred Quimby job really well. And in fact, what I did is I started to restructure the way that creative people and products came in the door and I gave them a corner to do what they felt doing and I went and did what I had to do. And the result was we found all these great people, forget the hits, and those great people were the people who made all the hits. We gave them their heads to do what they did best. We let them be the experts instead of us being the experts. What do I know about cartoons? I know nothing other than I enjoyed watching Bugs Bunny as a kid. So it was very, very useful to give the talented people that populated the studio their heads to make the products that they thought would save the company, and they did. That's interesting. I think a lot of people would come into that and they'd say, okay, you know, this is out of sync with the market. Why don't we go out there, do focus groups, figure out that people want this in a cartoon and that in a cartoon and then restructure the cartoons we're making. What do you think avoided, you know, you falling into that trap? Well, everyone else was doing that and they were failing. <laughs> they were making products that in my view were substandard. Um, and the way I looked at it was that Trying to copy the guy who's making today's product that you think is substandard but doing a little better is probably not the model to have as your role model. 
So what I decided to do in my analysis is who made the greatest cartoons in history? My view is that the great theatrical cartoons of the 20s, 30s, and 40s were the great cartoons of history. And my definition of the great cartoons of history is that if you went and sat with a six-year-old today, they were watching those literal cartoons, right? It's not like the pop music business where the pop music that was made in 1942 has been history for 50 years. In the case of cartoons, cartoons that are made in 1934, 42, 52, whatever, are still on TV today making money for their owners. So I decided that I would make them my role models, the greatest things ever done, and say what is useful in that model of how they made them and how did they come to their conclusions. So our focus groups, for instance, is we made a cartoon with someone and then we would show them the cartoon and if they liked it, we would make more. And if they didn't like it, we would never make more. That's exactly how Bugs Bunny came to be Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Bugs Bunny didn't say, what's up, Doc, for the first eight cartoons. <laughs> it was that they made one and they said, oh, people seem to like this. Let's try another one. And they did that one at a time for almost 400 times over the next 50 years. You make it, people like it, you make some more. I thought that was a pretty good model and that's kind of what I did. Great. So you succeeded there. You got promoted. Tell me, how did your career turn or end? Ted decided to sell the company to Time Warner. And uh, after doing my good corporate duty for a year of telling my staff how everything was going to be wonderful and great and nothing was going to change and the things that were going to change were not going to affect us in any way, I looked around and realized that working for Ted Turner was one thing and working for one of the most unpleasant corporate environments <laughs> successful though it was at Time Warner was another thing. And I decided that I just didn't want to go into that environment. And going back to my rules of having fun, making money and standing the people that I work with, I realized that I would make a lot of money. I wouldn't have much fun. I'd probably like a person here and there and wasn't for me. And so I decided to leave. So let's fast forward now to your more recent ventures. Um, I mean, to me, cable is something I grew up with. So it, yeah, to it's you, it's nothing special, right? <laughs> and it's amazing that you know that you've kind of had that whole entrepreneurial experience there when the internet came around. What you think? You know, what when you did your research? Uh, what what you draw from it? Well, you know, I had no particular interest in the internet. Um, I think I had decided that it wasn't for me that I was no longer a young person, you know, full of piss and vinegar, ready to take on the world, that I was a little bit of more mature of an executive, and this was for, you know, the young folk. And I really didn't pay any attention other than to, you know, get a browser and, you know, search around for books and unmentionable things on this podcast. <laughs> and that was really it. And the bubble started to blow up. And I paid a little attention, but I wasn't a big deal one way or the other. And I happened to be at the funeral of my best friend, the guy I started my record company with, had a horrible car accident. And I'm at the funeral with all my friends of the last 25 years. And one of our friends walks up to me and goes, did you see that Andrew just sold his company to AOL for $388 million? I said, yeah, I said, good for Andrew. It's fantastic. He goes, what are you doing in this internet thing? I said, I'm not doing anything. 
goes, why not? It's perfect for you. I said, I don't get it. You know, I know how to buy books, but you know, I, I don't get it. He goes, it's made for you. I said, in what way? He said, you know, the way you think about how you market products and how you make brands and you do, the internet's made for that stuff. I went, oh, and I didn't really think about it again. I was mourning my friend. And I get on the plane to go back to Los Angeles and I sit down next to a guy that I've known for years and I uncharitably in my head wonder how he's sitting in first class. Because I knew I was sitting in first class because someone else was paying for it. It was the only way I could afford it. And he starts telling me, he was a designer. He did you know, ads for TV shows and stuff. And he starts telling me that in the process of being a designer, he bought all these little interactive companies and had put them together, brought them public, and had you know, made trillions. And now he was hanging out with Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if he can do it, anybody could do it. But I went back to my office, I wasn't thinking. And Tom Freston, who ran MTV Networks at the time, calls me up and said, you know, we're going to be reorganizing all of our internet efforts. Now, at the time, I was an independent cartoon producer for Nickelodeon, but I was also a consultant to MTV Networks. They had asked me to come back to consult with them on uh, branding and promotional and programming issues, which I did happily. And he said, you know, did you ever think of like coming back to New York and maybe you could come and run our internet ventures? I'm like thinking, oh, this is like a repeat of Hanna-Barbera. I get to go in at the top. And within six months, I had moved my family back to New York. I continued producing some of my cartoons like from afar. And for about a year, I ran MTV Networks online and then ran out of the building screaming. It was such a miserable experience for them and for me. The guy who had gone to work there in 1980 and the guy who was running this internet venture for them in 1999, I wasn't the same guy. But I was more the same guy than they were the same company. I thought I was going back into an entrepreneurial startup kind of environment with people I had started with. Tom Freston and I started almost the same month in the company. <laughs> I thought they weren't kidding. They wanted to build a business. And every time I tried to make a move to build the business, they basically told me that I was harming their bonus pool. And I realized that they weren't in any way interested in building a business. They were just trying to protect what they already had. And one day, Tom and I just looked at each other. Herb Scannell and I just looked at each other. And I said, you know, I think I ought to go back to being a consultant and a producer for you. And they went, yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> and I left. Now, what happened was I brought along with me, though, a 25-year-old who I had lured into the company. As is my way when I start in any new venture, the first thing I do is I call everyone I know. And I say, who do you know that's interesting? Who should I get to know? And a friend of mine who had taken the circuitous route of being the developing executive of the Lion King <laughs> had gone to work at AOL when there were you know, 300 employees and had hired this kid out of college who was an engineer, had stayed there for seven years and was 25, there were 9,000 employees and he was ready to leave. So he introduced me to Emil Rensing. And when I decided I was going to leave MTV Networks Online, I walked into Emil's office. He was the only guy I told that day. And I said, you know, I'm going to leave. He goes, I just quit this morning. I hate it here. And right then and there, we decided to start our own little 
internet business. At the time, we thought it was going to be one of those incubators that were really popular in 2000. Um, and, uh, you know, the market was beginning to crash, but we weren't really paying attention. And we went and signed a series of arrangements with various media companies to help them in their internet ventures. And Emil and I proceeded along and, you know, we got a little bit of funding and everything was, but, you know, everything was terrible. And the truth of the matter is I spent more and more time thinking about my cartoons because in the meantime, the cartoons I hadn't paid any attention to, one of them had become one of the top 10 cartoons, forget cartoons, one of the top 10 programs on cable television. So the cartoon business was looking really good to me. The internet business wasn't a business at that point. It was a series of people who just believed, including Emil. And we started you know, doing a little consulting and it kind of faded. So a couple of years go by, we're sort of struggling that along. My cartoon business is going great. And I'm about to start a new show. And I went into Amel's office and I said, you know what, what should I do on the internet? I'm sick of having the cartoon business on this side of my office, the internet business on this side of my office, and they never meet. But I don't want to spend a lot of money. You know, I don't have a lot of money to do it. And I don't really know why I want to do it, what I want to do. And he said, well, you should start a blog. It was right, you know, it was a couple years into the blog thing, but they hadn't exploded yet. And I said, okay, because I do anything Emil tells me. <laughs> and I said, why? He goes, well, you know, it's simple, it's easy, it's cheap, and, you know, you'll learn something. I said, great, 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 great. What will I learn? I'm trying to shortcut the process. What <laughs> will I learn, Emil? He said, I don't know, you'll learn something. <laughs> and I started a blog that night. But in typical media executive way, I assigned it to someone on my staff to actually do, who then assigned it to somebody on his staff. But nonetheless, in two months, I learned something, which is in two months, I had 2,000 readers. And I learned that I owned my own little newspaper. Now, that might have been obvious to everyone else, but you know, at the time, I was probably 50-some years old, and it wasn't obvious to me until, with no effort, I had 2,000 readers. And all of a sudden, I realized... I had a tiger by the tail. Within 18 months, I had started 40 more blogs around my business. And all of a sudden, not only did I have 2,000 readers, but now I had 2,000 readers a month. Now I had 2,000 readers a week. Now I had 2,000 readers a day or 10,000 a week. I, was, I didn't have any idea what I was going to do with it. None. Zero. But I learned a very salient thing for my core business. As I said about Hanna-Barbera, my core animation business was meeting talent. And it was really hard to meet talent in New York when most of the animation talent lives in Los Angeles. And increasingly, more and more of the talent lives around the world. And one of the things I found out by having this blog is I had indirectly met talent all over the world because I found out through comments and emails and all, you know, going to conferences that Animators from all around the world were paying attention to what we were doing because I found out that to this day, we are the only major animation producers in the world who keep an active blog. DreamWorks doesn't do it. Pixar doesn't do it. You know, Nickelodeon doesn't do it. Cartoon Network does No one. The only animators that seem to keep blogs are the indies, you know, from various places around the world. And because we were a major producer, everyone around the world was reading and wondering what we were up to. 
About 18 months ago, I said, okay, maybe there's a more active way to meet even more filmmakers directly and really get to know them. And video was starting to raise its head on the internet. I had started with Emil a car video sharing site. Emil is a car fanatic. We had done a series of car television shows for Spike TV. And I went to the young guy who was 18 or 19 at the time who builds all my stuff. I said, could you build? And I drew out for him the little video network. I was put that in quotes that we had that I wanted to do. And he said, yeah, you know, I can, I can build that. He comes back two weeks later, he said, you know, I didn't do it. <laughs> and I figured, you know, he was actually building a site for a company down here in Dumbo that actually just sold recently. Mm-hmm. And he was busy and he's 19, right? So he doesn't, he goes, oh, no, 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 that's not why I didn't do it. He goes, you know, it's a really bad idea what you want to do. <laughs> I said, okay, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, very old school, very 2000, as only a 19-year-old could do, right? And I went, and I started arguing with him. I said, no, no, this is exactly what I want. And he goes, look, let me show you something. And he pulls out a Sony PSP. This is before the video iPod. And uh, he plays me a little episode that he had put together of a few of my cartoons that I had given him to use. And he had knit them together with a few little promos and interstitial things and one of my logos. And he had named it Channel Frederator. His name is David Karp, by the way. It's a company called davidville.com. <laughs> He's a web developer and inventor of various kinds of engineering products. And uh, I said, well, you know, David, I really recognize this. What you're showing me is television. I'm in the television <laughs> business. I don't want television. I want these little videos of animations on a site. He goes, look, you don't want to do it. We, we argued for two hours. Wow. And at the end of it, I said, look, you're much more into this than I am. I don't know what I'm talking about. As long as it doesn't cost me more than $5,000, do it. I called Emil, who at that point was living on the West Coast, and I said, we're going to do this. Maybe we could do this in Cars. And so he edited together a little VOD Cars episode. VODcars.com is his video sharing site. And we put them up on the Internet. He calls me two weeks later. He goes, you know, we're going to have some trouble here. I said, why is that? He goes, our bandwidth bill is going to be $25,000. What are you talking about? He said, well, we have 50,000 downloads already. I went, how do we get those? I don't know anything about bandwidth, bandwidth costs. It doesn't occur to me. He goes, well, you know, the blogs picked up that we were doing this. They put up RSS feeds. I still don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And all these people downloaded episodes. I said, 50,000. You know, Emil, if we had a hundred of these things, that could be pretty valuable to some advertisers. He said, yeah, you know, might be. And he hangs up and we go back to work. He calls me three hours after Steve Jobs introduces the video iPod. He goes, oh, we're in trouble now. I thought he was kind of kidding. He said, we're going to have a million downloads by the end of the month. I was like, holy crap. (laughs) We really are on to something. Within a few months, we started selling advertising on VOD cars. We set the price at a ridiculously high CPM, which I will tell you off the air because you won't believe me. (laughs) And we really realized we were onto something, and I started gathering up friends to participate. The first guy I called was Jed Simmons, who had been my partner at Hanna-Barbera, and in fact was doing consulting projects with Emil for the WWE, for Avon, for Victoria's Secret Internet projects. 
I said, look, I'm sort of semi-thinking about maybe starting another incubator thing. I know nobody likes the word, but I think I'm going to do it again. I'm going to start investing in projects. I just invested. I was the angel investor in a new food network, broadband network that's starting up with my friend Ed Levine, SeriousEats.com. He looked at the whole thing. He goes, oh, well, you funded for this thing? I said, no. He goes, I'm not interested. He said, I've been down this road too many times before. <laughs> so I brought him in to consult with Serious Eats, which we were just starting to develop at that point, knowing that if I brought him in the office and he heard what I was talking about over on the other side of the room, that you know he'd start paying attention and listening and giving advice and all that. And Emil then brought in a young friend of his named Tim Shea, who had founded one of the first mobile video content companies called Proteus, had sold it the year before, and was doing uh, consulting and managing producing for Rocket Boom, hmm. and had started developing distribution deals and advertising deals for Rocket Boom. And so Tim started showing up at the meetings. Around that time, my friend Herb Scannell, who had been vice chairman at MTV and CEO of Nickelodeon, left Viacom. And I asked him to start coming in, not as a business proposition, but just to hear what we had to say to poke holes in it, because Herb can be very good at seeing where the weaknesses in media arguments are. He's, like me, a real media baby. And then Jed started calling a mutual friend of ours who had run Turner Pictures, Lionsgate pictures and had reinvented himself during the internet era as a VC and was one of the general partners at a company called Spark Capital up in Boston. His name is Dennis Miller, not the comedian. <laughs> and he asked Dennis to start coming in and hearing what we had to say, which was literally not a business, but a notion. And we would test the notion on Dennis and he would, you know, say what was right or wrong about it and then go away and he'd come back a couple of weeks later and go, you think anything more? And we had sort of evolved the thing. And within about six months, it was clear that we really had the bones of a company, a company that would launch a hundred, a number picked out of a hat because it's a nice number, a hundred of what we had started calling these micro television networks. Now, you know, no one thinks that 15 minutes a week is a network in the terms that CBS or NBC is except for us. And nobody thinks it's television. You know, if you go and look at some of the places that we've been talked about on the internet, people are making fun of the fact that we think it's television. But, you know, I think it's television because I think television is something that we have learned as consumers to depend on. We go to a place and at nine o'clock on Mondays, 24 is running. And we know what we're going to get. We know when we're going to get it. And we like the shows that dependably give us what we're expecting and we hate the shows that are predictably give us the same thing they gave us last week. You know, we like dependability, not predictability. We like things where we know what they stand for. We know that Nickelodeon stands for kids better than anyone. The Cartoon Network stands for cartoons better than anyone. That MTV stands for young people better than anyone. That ESPN stands for the sports fan better than for anyone. We like that as consumers. And we realized that if we created these little micro-branded snippets of television, put them on the air dependably every week in a place that people could find them, followed the rules of the new world, the rules being that you know digital rights management is for the birds, 
that freeing distribution, allowing anyone to distribute your product was the way it was going. I always looked at the evolution of uh, traditional television as in the old network days when there were three networks, the network shouted at you and you took what product they had. You know, that's how they marketed to you. When we got into cable, the thing that allowed us to market at a significantly lower price point than network television was that by having a branded focused product, our fans were our marketing department. You know, you were young enough to have watched Nickelodeon or MTV as a kid. And the first thing you did when you saw something that you liked was tell your friend about it, knowing that your friend would like it too. That's your marketing department. So marketing budgets were much lower. In this world, your fan is now your distributor. If you let them, if you encourage them and you give them the tool, they can take a little code, put it on their MySpace page, and all of a sudden, in addition to being your fan, they're your distributor. And the 25 people that read their MySpace page will also see your product. We knew that if we could launch networks on that basis, not on the basis that CBS does it, not on the basis that MTV does it, but on the basis that Next New Networks, the name of our company, does it, we would win. We also knew that if we could figure out a way to tap into what had become, what has become, a backlog of talent, we could provide programming to the audience that they had never really felt and seen before. When I got into the cable television business, my uh, salary was less than half of someone doing the same job at a local television station. <laughs> but there was no room for me at the local television station. If I had gone and knocked on the door, they would have given me a job as a gopher I would have worked on that for two years before they gave me the job as a production assistant. I would have worked on that for five years before they gave me the job as a desk assistant, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, when I was 40, I'd get a real job. Cable TV allowed me to go in at the exact same level as a guy running a department, bring in writers you know, who are right out of college to write world-class stuff for me and expose it to the world. That was great. And that's how the company built. That's why Herb Scannell could start as a promotional assistant and end up as vice chairman of the company. When we looked at what we had an opportunity to do in this internet television world, by our view, what I realized is that if you were a young, talented person coming out of school and you went to work at one of these big companies, well, you tell me, what was your first job when you got out of school? Well, it was Venture Voice, actually, but well, okay. I was at school. I was at CNN.com. You were at CNN.com, and what was your job? It was you know, basically helping with the interactive media there and starting to look at what they could do to bridge So how long was there. it going to take you to become a top executive at CNN? Quite a long time. Right. So if how I ever made it. Right. How long did it take you to become a top executive at this venture? Well, let me see how long. It took about An three hour. hours to end the show and uh, <laughs> got right. right there. So we realized that there was this 25-year backlog of young talent who had no place to go in the traditional media. And that if we could populate our new company with them, it would be great. So I started Channel Frederator a year ago. 
I'm just telling you the story now of our first employee because it's, it's perfect. I started Channel Fredder a year ago and I knew I wanted to have little fun promos like I had done in television because television didn't do them anymore. And I called my best favorite video friend who unfortunately for me is one of the founders of collegehumor.com. He's 24 years old. His name is Jacob Lodwig, but I knew him as a video producer. He was like an amazing video guy when he was in college, which is when I met him. So I called Jacob and I said, look, I know you're not available. You're about to sell your company for many millions of dollars, but who, if, who do you know that I should know to make my promos? He said, oh, you should call my friend Justin. And he gave me Justin's phone number. I didn't even know Justin's last name. I called Justin up and I said, Justin, where are you anyway? He goes, I'm in Orlando, Florida. My girlfriend's in college here. And I said, okay, great. Well, you know, Jacob told me you're the perfect guy to make promos. He goes, yeah, I'll make promos for you. He, um, what's a promo? <laughs> so I explained to him what the promo was and I told him what I was going to pay. And he said, okay, I'll email you one tomorrow. And without anything other than you have to have the logo at the end and you have to have the name of the network channel federator, like at the end with the logo, you know, do what you want to do. And he emailed me the thing. We paid him by PayPal. That was it. <laughs> and for a year, Justin has been making promos for us. So he was my model for who the employees of Next New Networks could be, but I had no idea what he actually did for a living. All I knew is he did these things for us and he had a little you know, video blog. So I called him up uh, in the fall when we were raising money. And I said, look, you just moved to San Francisco. I'm gonna be out there, why don't we have coffee? And he came in, he sat down, he had a big smile on his face. I'd never met him before. And, I looked at him, it took 30 seconds. I said, you think you'd move to New York? He goes, well, what do you mean? I just moved here. I said, yeah, but you know, if you stay here, I can give you promos to do every once in a while. If you move to New York, I can give you a full-time job. He goes, how soon can I get there? I said, tomorrow? He goes, yeah, I'll be there. Justin's our first employee. And we're gonna populate this company with people who have nothing on their minds, but how can I do the great work that I wanna do? And in keeping with the way that I've run all my businesses, I look at you and I go, what do you want to do? And you tell me, and if what you want to do sort of fits in the area of what I want to do, let's do it together. And the truth is, is that my job is for you to do great work and for me to watch. <laughs> I'm like Fred Quimby making the cartoons, right? I'm going to go out and get my barber to shave me. I'll go out to lunch. <laughs> I'll make a few phone calls after lunch and I'll go home and while you're doing what you want to do. If we run Next New Network's right, that's what we're going to end up doing and it's going to be spectacular. If we don't, we'll screw it up, we'll close it and another venture down. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of the core essence behind this company then, I mean, it depends on getting good content or getting good talent to make good content, but do you have any kind of focus in terms of what kind of content you want to make? Yeah. It's less about getting good content than understanding the marketplace. And so what we've decided to do is not select the content, but let the community select the content. And so what we've really done is we've gone out there and looked at what communities want video, what communities have inklings of the fact that there is video there that they would want 
but haven't figured out a way to put it into a dependable form and then servicing it back to those communities so that they can enjoy it. So if there's a great blog out there for snakes, which there doesn't seem to be, and the snake people decide that, you know, they would love video of snakes. And there is a guy out there who's making great video of snakes, but doesn't know what to do with it. We probably have a venture to go into together. Or in the case of a friend of mine um, who is married to the teacher of one of my children, he works for the parks department in New York City. He's, um, a, uh, he's from the UK and he loves urban gardening. He loves the idea of trees and flowers in the urban environment. And he started making video on his own of nature in the urban environment. You know, I think there's something for us to do there. There is a huge amount of people who are interested in that subject, both from an environmental standpoint and from just a pure love of nature and gardens, who have started gathering in various small communities around the internet, around the world, whether it's here or in London and Shanghai, you know, in, in Buenos Aires, they're, they're all over. So it's really, as is always the case, the audience that is going to tell us where to go, not us telling them where to go. And we're going to find the talent from the audience, not from our staff, and we'll hopefully find a great relationship to add them to our staff if they can. A lot of the thinking now on the internet is that with things being so cheap, anyone can just go out and do it for yep. virtually no startup costs, as mm -hmm. I guess Andrew at Rocket Boom might mm -hmm. be a great mm -hmm. example. So when they're going out there and they say, hey, you know what, I got a camera, I can post it tonight. What's the value for them to come to you and become part of your company or do some kind of deal with you? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story again with one of my staff members. Um, a year ago, I got an email through my wife uh, around the Jewish high holidays. I'm not Jewish, my wife is, my kids are. And it was a really funny video, like almost a parody of American Idol around a synagogue. <laughs> and it was funny as all get out. And I learned a long time ago, when I laugh out loud, I gotta find the person who did it. And I started tracking down the filmmaker and it turned out he lived a couple miles away in Brooklyn. And we started getting to know each other and he'd come in the office and after about six months, we decided to create a more formal relationship where he would move his studio into my place uh, up on, uh, in Manhattan. So a year goes by, and the same little group of synagogues that had hired him last year to get the young people into the high holidays hired him again. And he made a great video called Hebrew Crunk. <laughs> it was a rapper that it was a parody of Little John, the crunk rapper, and a rapping rabbi to a song that he had written. His name is Dan Meth. has a little site called danmeth.com. And he wrote a Hebrew crunk rap, made the little animated video. This year he put it on YouTube, which wasn't really a factor a year ago. And within two days had gotten 500,000 views of his film. And I went, Dan, you know, you don't need me anymore. He goes, no, I really need you now. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know what to do next. <laughs> I have 500,000 friends. What do I do next? 
So in a lot of ways, what our venture is about is creating structure where anything is possible. And I don't know about you, but I get really confused when anything is possible. <laughs> I'm always looking for me, uh, for myself, for people to organize my activity into something that makes more sense. I have a tough time sometimes on iTunes. There's just everything there. So what do I do? I hit the jazz tab because I like jazz. Or I hit the soul tab because I like popular black music. Or I hit the world music tab. All that is is organizing my activity. So what we, I think, do both for viewers, well, actually for viewers, for advertisers, and for talent, is we create some kind of structure for a guy like Justin, who has been doing video blogs since the beginning of video blogging, but doesn't know what to do with the fact that he's a video blogger. For a guy like Andrew who has Rocket Boom, he knows what to do, so he does it. There are millions of opportunities in the world for people of different kinds of personalities. We're not right for everybody that's out there on the internet doing video on their own. We're really right for other people. We're not right for every viewer. It's not going to be like the old days where there were three networks or even a hundred networks. There are now going to be a trillion networks. And our opportunity is to create something that people fall in love with. If they fall in love with Channel Frederator, I win. If they don't, I lose. It's really as simple as that. I have a branding mentor. And I brought him in one day and asked him. He, he's you know, seven, eight years older than I am. He's brilliant. He's the guy who did the famous I Want My MTV commercials back in the day. And I said, you know, I'm launching some stuff, you know, some of these things. I had another podcast that I was launching, a uh, vintage cartoon, one called Refrederator. And I had some confusions as to how I was going to, quote, brand it, unquote. And he, I told him my story. He goes, you know, you're really worrying about the wrong things, which is what he said to me for 30 years. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, what you used to think of as branding, it doesn't count anymore. Having just the right idea and the right spot and the right tagline doesn't matter. I said, really? Well, what matters? He said, well, you know, in this world of hypermedia, where every hour there's 10 more things for us to do, the thing that counts is the most exciting thing. I said, oh, great. He goes, however, if there's something more exciting next week, you lose. <laughs> And so already I realized that our job at Next New Networks is to keep the excitement up for all of these people and all of their things, not just giving them a paycheck. Though for some of them, a paycheck is you know, kind of useful. It's not for us to make television on the internet. I'm not trying to make shows the way that Fox does, the way that MTV does. I don't want to make the things that they make. It's a different medium doing different things in a different way. In fact, I don't want to make all that much of anything because our viewers are really happy to make things and get them to us. Our job is to contextualize them in a way that they like and move it from like to love. So you mentioned that the idea of getting people excited about it is very important and you want to pull in a lot of new talent. I suspect, at least I do and a lot of my listeners read a lot of blogs. I just want to give you the opportunity to address uh, one blog, Paid Content, I think everyone now is kind of looking, things are heating up, they're trying to figure out, you know, what's really good, what's kind of the dumb money getting in, 
And, you know, they'd written this blog post kind of saying, oh, well, now the money's flowing in. Here are some old media guys coming in with their money. Here's some fat old guys, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, on one hand, the my snarky answer always back is it's better to be underestimated. Because the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter what paid content writes about us or what we write about us. The only thing that matters is what our viewers think of us. And if we do our job well and they fall in love with us, they don't care if our company's called network or vlog. They don't care if we're TV guys or we're, you know, Kevin Rose. They don't really care. All they care about is are we giving them products that they love. And the truth of the matter is, from my perspective and from my partner's perspective, staying focused on that is the most important thing. And getting over it when somebody writes something snarky about you is, you know, the right thing. On the other hand, you know, I read the post and they're like, start complaining that our bios are too long. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, you know, I am 55 years old. (laughs) I did a bunch of things. I, I guess, you know, I actually don't even mention them all in my bio and some of them aren't worth thinking about. I'm not really sure what to do with any of that other than to stay focused on what we do. The other thing is the thing in every new industry and the interactive industry in its 2.0 phase is yet another new industry. Everybody is very focused on who's in the club and who's out of the club. And the truth of the matter is we're out of the club. And it's not we're out of the club because of our age because frankly two of my partners and the two most important partners are 30 years old. And as I said to you early, you know, dropped out of college at a very young age to get into the interactive world before any of these people knew what the interactive world was. And they're much more important to this venture than I am. I'm just, you know, a big mouth who like (laughs) comes on a podcast and talks a lot. The fact of the matter is that it's whether we do a good job at what we do. And if we do a good job of what we do, we will redefine the vocabulary once again. If we do a bad job of what we do, it doesn't matter what we're called. So that's kind of the way that I have looked at it. Um, I probably uh, would like it better if everyone liked us. But the truth of the matter is, if you saw the nasty things that people wrote about us when we were doing MTV when I was like 28 (laughs) years old... I mean, I'm talking about in the beginning, you know, before we were even on the air and when people just thought we were like completely full of crap (laughs) and didn't know what we were doing. And you call that a network and you call that a TV channel. That's not TV. No show starts at eight (laughs) o'clock. You know, those are three minute things. You know, it was ridiculous what the people said at the time, including, by the way, a lot of my own employees. (laughs) So I've kind of gotten used to the fact that I'm an outsider. I'll be an outsider my whole life. It turns out that in a world of outsiders, I'm even an outsider. <laughs> That's how it goes. So at the same time, though, you do have to get the word out. What, what's your strategy now to you know, build that image for this? I mean, I know you already have an audience with some of your brands, but how do you attract all these really creative people and people who want to consume this kind of media? Well, first of all, I'll just mention to you that after paid content wrote that and all that, the thousands of emails that I've been going through, many of whom are really talented people, uh, we've gotten the word out. (laughs) So your strategy is to get more negative publicity. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, there was an old saw written by an MGM publicist in the 30s. Good publicity, bad publicity, as long as they spell your name right. Yeah. I guess that's true. 
But the truth of the matter is, is that each one of the networks we build is going to have to find an audience by itself. And the way that we're going to find an audience is by creating a network from people within the community and they will tell each other about it. If we do not pull someone from the community and make them the centerpiece of what we do, we will fail. So the reason that AIMO has 300,000 viewers every week of VOD cars is because AIMO himself has been active in the internet car communities for 10 years. So when he goes out and tells people that he's up to something, people pay attention. Why? Not because he's so good, but because he's never BS'd them before. <laughs> he doesn't go on and use it as a medium to hype himself. He goes on and uses it a medium of discussion the way that it was meant to be. So that he has thousands and thousands of virtual friends already. When I go on and do Channel Frederator, it isn't that I'm so special and that it's so good. It's that I've been in the animation community for 15 years in some way or other, in certain ways for 25 years. And I mean what I say and I say what I mean. And all in all, people have learned that when I do something in animation, they ought to at least check it out once. Once you've checked it out, if the product's there, it's great. And they check it out some more and tell their friends. And if they don't, they move away. So each one, whether we're in fashion or in pets or the next bunch of things we're going to launch in automotive or in idea and politics or in business or in media, if we have not pulled people out of the communities appropriately and worked with them to create a product that they believe is good, we deserve to fail. So I like the high-level view here. Do you think that there is a big difference in starting a company today versus 20 years ago when it comes down to what the entrepreneurs should be focused on? No. Starting a company is always the same, which is have you fulfilled a need in the market and have you done it with some amount of authenticity and usefulness to the customer who might be able to use it? The only real, yeah, there's no real differences. I mean, the, the biggest challenges I find for entrepreneurs, and I will put myself at the head of that list, is why did you become an entrepreneur and why did you start a company? You know, it's probably not surprising that my first venture failed when my goal was in starting my company was to get my name on the back of a record, <laughs> not to sell the record. Well, gee whiz, I guess my goal was wrong, at least in terms of sustaining the business. And so inside of five years, I was out of business with more debts than I started with. <laughs> if my goal is to have a good time, yeah, I can start a company and have a good time. In Channel Frederator's case, there was no traditional business entrepreneurial goal. It was very indirect. I needed to meet more animation talent around the world to build my other business with. On that level, I succeeded admirably. My friends all said, well, how are you going to get revenue? I said, I really don't care. It's a marketing expense. I have decided that I'm willing to spend X dollars over the course of a year to meet animators. And the truth of the matter was, I met a thousand more animators. Now, I've added a business goal. I want to sell some advertising to be able to make itself sustain itself. But in the meantime, I've met so many animators, Greg, it's unbelievable, so many that in two weeks, I'm having 
the first annual Channel Frederator Award Show. <laughs> it's actually a party that's celebrating the awards. It's the first award show in this video podcast area. And as far as I can tell, it's the first legitimate award show that really honors user-generated video. So we put on the award show. We announced it a few months ago. We've been collecting information, votes, all from our community. And sure enough, people are flying in from London, from New Zealand, from Texas, from Kentucky, all to attend the Channel Frederator Awards. I'm like thrilled. It's costing me a bloody fortune. <laughs> I figure that some way or other we'll end up making money from doing it. So our entrepreneurial goal is really the issue, whether it's today or 20 years ago or 40 years ago. When Joe Barbera and Bill Hanna started Hanna-Barbera, it wasn't to create one of the great animation companies of all time. It was they had been fired from their jobs and they needed a paycheck. They thought if they started a production company, they could have a paycheck. And then they looked around and realized that all their friends were out of work too. Gee, maybe they could provide them with a paycheck. It happened that they were the greatest talent in their business that had ever been assembled in one place. It was a greater talent pool than ever assembled at Disney, at Warner Brothers, and anywhere. And sure enough, surprisingly enough, they had an explosive set of successes. And great business opportunities came to them from that. But it wasn't their goal. I think it's the same thing now. I think if you set your goal clearly and then you authentically stay focused on executing that goal, you will fulfill that goal. So you're still working as hard as you used to, putting in as many hours? I don't put it in as many hours per se. One, I'm older. Two is I have a family. Three is I get tired you know, faster. Um, but I work just as hard. And if you ask my wife harder than <laughs> I've ever worked, because think about it, right now I have two full-time jobs. I run an animation production studio and, you know, we have three shows in production. We're putting two more into production by spring and we're starting a feature film division. And I just started a startup in this internet television <laughs> stuff, Next New Networks. And, you know, startups, it doesn't matter what, if I start a new production, it's 87 hours a day of work <laughs> to get it going. Starting a new company is even harder. Luckily, in the company, I have five great founders, me included. I'm the only part-time guy, really, in the thing. Um, and I think that we have a prayer to do it. But the truth is, I think I, when I started this, I told you that I got into this being the son of parents who believed that work was a joy and not a chore. And the fact of the matter is, I have as great a time working as I do with anything else. I'm going to speak to a bunch of graphic designers in a couple of weeks and my wife is being a little grumpy because she's never grumpy about my work. She's really the most fantastically supportive human ever. But it was a Saturday and I'm going away that night, uh, which I rarely do. I rarely travel on business on the weekends. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, you really could spend some time with the boys. And I said, well, you know, I think they'll have a great time if they come with me and they watch me speak. You know, they're, they're proud when they see me speak, and I, maybe they'll learn something. And so my kids will come along when I speak, so it's sort of work, it's sort of business, it's sort of fun, it's sort of personal. It all works out okay. I grew up that way. It's only given me great 
opportunity and fun and uh, it's given me great ways to make a living throughout my life. I think I can continue to do that until I drop. Well, my last question now, I think until I drop is a good, <laughs> good cue to end. But uh, I do want to ask... Can, you can insert this new question somewhere else. <laughs> but, well, I do want to ask you to finish it off, though. You talk to a lot of young people. It seems like you kind of make an effort to connect with up-and-coming creative types. So what's your advice to listeners out there who want to start their own business in any industry? You know, what, what should they be keeping in mind when they're kind of dealt with all this confusion and adversity? I don't think there's any confusion or adversity unless you're confused and adverse. <laughs> there was a great book written about 25 years ago about Hollywood, actually, from a Hollywood screenwriter called Adventures in the Screenwriting Trade. His name is William Goldman, still in print. He wrote some of the great movies of all time. He wrote All the President's Men, The Princess Bride, Marathon Man. And there's a chapter heading in the book that is one of the most famous thing to come out of the book. It said, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. <laughs> so recently I was speaking to a group of 40-something executives uh, about this disruption, confusion, and adversity. And I said, would everybody raise their hands if they think that they don't really know enough about the Internet? And, you know, most of the people raised their hand. I said, you know you ought to understand something that you're in great company because in the internet, nobody knows anything. And anybody who tells you they know something, they are the first one online of not really knowing anything. <laughs> so nobody really knows anything. You guys don't know anything. You're perfectly suited for each other. <laughs> the truth of the matter is what I tell people, and it doesn't actually matter if they're young or old, I actually speak as much to people my age as I do to the young folk. Uh, what I recommend to people is they just start getting involved in this new world in the things that they love. Just start as a reader. If you love media, pick up every blog that's about the media and read it. If you love snakes, pick up every blog that's about snakes and read it. Get involved in the areas that you are passionate about or that you want to start your business at. And at some point or another, a little bell will go off as to what it has to do with you and any business that you would want to start. <laughs> so when I got in the cartoon business and I didn't know anything, I booked two breakfasts, a lunch, and a dinner every night, six days a week. I really had to rest one day. And I would take anybody to a meal who could tell me something about what I wanted to know. And that didn't matter if it was the head of Warner Brothers or it was an artist in Pasadena. And I literally would talk to all of them. I sat on that couch for two years, scared to death to go to the desk because I didn't know what I was doing. One day, I invited a friend from New York to come over to the studio two years in. And I gave him a tour of the studio. And by the time I was done with the tour, I went, oh, I own the studio now. I know what I'm doing. I didn't realize it until that tour. Ah. The two years of sitting there that I had my point of view, and from then on, you couldn't stop me. You know, that was 12 years ago that I gave that tour. And the animation business has been my... There's nothing I've wanted to do in the animation business that I haven't been able to do since then. And I found that is true in every medium, in every business, in every area, which is if you get deeply involved you'll know what it has to do with you at one day. So I have a buddy, I'll leave it at this, he's 
48, 49, ran a little division of a media company, ran their internet division five years ago, and is confused because he said, well, you know, no headhunter wants to give me a job because my experience is out of date. How can it be out of date? It's only five, you know, all that type of stuff. So I said, why don't you come to my office? Can you get two hours, three hours a week out of your job to come to my office? He goes, yeah. I said, why don't you just come there and sit there? (laughs) He goes, why would I do that? I said, well, you know, when I wanted to get in the music business, my best friend's dad was in the music business, and there was no such such thing as an internship then. He would let me come in his office and sit there for three hours at a time watching him work. He said, yeah. I said, well, when I was done doing that for, in my case, I did it for four years, like all during college, I felt confident that I could make it in the music business. I said, come in and sit in my office. My guess is at some point you'll go, oh, I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the same thing for everybody who wants to get into every business, which is find a way to personally involve yourself, even just as a reader. And one day you'll wake up and go, this is what I deserve to do in this business, whatever it is. And you win. Sounds like great advice. Well, thank- it's kind of what you're doing, right? <laughs> you like dove in and said, I can get involved. I can get involved in business. I can be an entrepreneur and I'll start a podcast to prove it. Yeah, that was exactly the impetus. It worked. Here you are. <laughs> you're an entrepreneur. That's all for this edition of Venture Voice. Hope you learned something. And better yet, I hope you share what you learned. Be sure to come back to our website at www.venturevoice.com where you can participate in our community. Leave public comments if you want on the blog section of the page. You can also check out my behind-the-scenes blog or hit the contact button where you can send me a private note. Also, you don't even have to log on to our website. You can call our listener line at 212 461 Four eight five zero. That's country code one two one two four six one four eight five zero. Leave a message, and I might just play it on the show. Until next time, this is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.